Great. Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm going to introduce someone now who is really good theologically, really makes me laugh, and I'm about to put the pressure on like it's the best man speech. And now I will just deconstruct that and say he's not, I don't know about his theology, not really sure, a bit awkward, but you know, and I don't think he's very funny. But we, 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 we just want anyone to have a platform here, just want to work with what we've got. So I'd just like to introduce to you the famous, the one and only, Bill Druitt. <laughs> um, I... And I say that because 30 years ago, I was in youth events and he was a funny youth leader. He was the funny youth leader. I've just got to get with a program that we're now like 30 years on. We've all grown up. We're all much more serious, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, can I pray for you? I'm much more serious, but Bill, um, can I pray for you? And then we're going to hear Bill talk on repentance, which is really exciting. Lord, I thank you so much for Bill and just how straightforward he is and you know well we'll see we'll see <laughs> I pray for an infilling of the Holy Spirit and that we do receive fresh breakthrough liberating revelation which you always kindly give to us amen wow that was powerful Alice did you feel the power leave you <laughs> uh, yes my name is Bill um, if we haven't met, uh, it's because I'm an introvert and a curmudgeon, and I only talk to people if I absolutely have to. So it's, it's all my fault, not yours. Um, uh, also, my, my watch strap uh, broke this morning, so I haven't got a watch. I was going to say, so I've got no idea how long I'm speaking for, um, but there's a great big clock on the wall, so I've got no excuse. Uh, but if, if you find I'm going on too long, just shuffle awkwardly, you know, fidget a bit, and I'll get the message and stop. Okay. Uh, here's today's passage. If you want to follow it, it's, um, it's in the Bible, um, and there are Bibles on your tables. Uh, this is John 4, uh, starting at verse 4. John 4, starting at verse 4. You may be familiar with this passage. John 4, starting at verse 4. Um, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Uh, but sir... You don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, 
Do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, and then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, rapidly changing the subject, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on, at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it, indeed, it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Uh, this is one of the New Testament's greatest hits. Um, if you ever have that conversation about favorite Bible passages, I guarantee someone will say John 4, and everyone in the group will kind of go misty-eyed and say, oh, yes, the woman at the well. And we can see why, uh, because Jesus breaks all the social and cultural rules in order to reach out and befriend this woman. Um, there's no way a devout Jewish man would be alone with a woman. The, the risk to his reputation, the risk of gossip would just be too much. And yet he's the one who initiates the conversation. Uh, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There's no way they'd, they'd sit down and have a meal together. And yet Jesus asked this woman for a drink. Worst of all, she has a fairly chaotic personal life. Um, fetching water tended to be a social activity for the women in a village. And they'd come early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it was cool. So what's she doing in the heat of the midday sun all alone? Well, we can kind of guess that her neighbours won't associate with her. She's an outcast. She's a reject. But Jesus isn't ashamed to be with her. 
Jesus knows all of this. He's aware of all the reasons why he shouldn't be alone talking to this woman. And yet he breaks the rules. He's the one who initiates the conversation. He reaches out. He accepts her and befriends her. Amazingly, at the end of the conversation, he reveals to her his true identity. Everyone in in all the Gospels is trying to work out who Jesus is. That's one of the big questions in the background all the way through the Gospels. You know, who is this man who is doing and saying all of this stuff? And yet, who is the one person who Jesus chooses to give the privilege of knowing the truth? Who's the one person who he lets into this secret of who he really is? This broken Samaritan woman. Um, It's a very rich passage. There's lots we could get out of it. Uh, It's also a very long passage. It's the longest one-to-one conversation that that John records in his whole gospel. So there's, there's lots we could focus on. But I, wanted to, I want to look at it from just one angle. I want to just ask one question, and it's quite a narrow one. And it's because this series is about repentance. Now, repentance at its heart is about changing our thinking. It's about transforming the way in which we see God, the way in which we see ourselves, the way in which we see others. And the Bible's job, especially in the church, is to help in that process. It's to challenge our thinking. It's to confront when we've we've adopted the world's way of looking at things. It's to confront that with God's view of looking at things. But the problem is, that tends to work best with passages that we find challenging. This passage we love. This passage we agree with. We can't get enough. We're on the sidelines cheering Jesus on. So how is this passage going to transform our thinking? How is it going to challenge us? Well, that's my question. And that's why I'm focusing on just this one little bit. My, My question is, is there any part of this story that we do find uncomfortable? Is there anything that jars where we think, ooh, I'm not sure I like that? Because if, if we're open to having our minds changed by the text, that's a, br- a pretty good clue about where it's going to happen. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's this bit. That was the cue. Okay? Do you notice a slight change of gear here? <laughs> and it's not a very smooth one. Um, Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Just when they were getting on so well, suddenly he's, he's painfully, eye-wateringly direct. Now, is he, is he trying to make friends or not? What the heck is going on at this point? Uh, Normally, when we come to an uncomfortable bit in the Bible, we we move swiftly on. What I've done this week is I've tried to stop and stare at this bit. 
because it's uncomfortable and try and work out what's going on. And so for the rest of the talk, what I just want to kind of share what it's done to me as I've done that. Okay, how has this passage made me change my thinking? How have I repented as I've looked at this bit? Excuse me. So, what I noticed was, as I read the passage, I like her. I'm on her side. She's a bit of a character. And when we come to this bit, I find I'm defending her. I'm saying, hang on, Jesus. I mean, for a start, here's an idea. This was a fairly patriarchal society. Often, men, husbands, would treat women, treat their wives quite badly, but the woman would get the blame. How do we know this hasn't happened here? You know, maybe she's more sinned against than sinning. Maybe she's actually the victim. And what I realize is that at this point, Jesus and I have parted company. Because that's not his approach at all. He's dragging all of her worst failures out into the light. It sounds like he's condemning her. It sounds like he's about to reject her. I'm not sure I like him very much at this point. So, is she a good person or is she a bad person? Well, I guess she's a little bit like everyone. I guess she's a little bit like all of us, which is a mixture. I bet there are times when she's genuinely trying to do her best. I bet there are times when she really is the victim, where she's the victim of circumstances, where she's the victim of other people's mistreatment, where she's been let down, where, where the troubles in her life are not her fault. I bet there are some times when that is true. And I bet there are also times where she makes bad choices for bad reasons, where she's selfish or proud or angry or whatever where her problems are genuinely her fault. How do I know that? Because that's what I'm like. I think that's what most of us are like. We're humans. We're a mixture of good and bad. So why is it at this point in the story that I'm kind of trying to make her out to be a good person? But even more, why does it seem that Jesus is trying to make her out to be a bad person? Let me tell you exactly what her village was like. This is how, what it was like in her village. Most people, most of the time, would see one another's faults. They'd see their flaws and their failings, but they wouldn't mention them. They'd gloss over them. They'd ignore them. They'd pretend they didn't exist. And why did most people most of the time do this? To get on. Because that's how civil society works. You don't bring these things up. For the sake of good relationships, you don't drag people's failings out into the light. You don't make them the topic of conversation. Except for this woman. For this woman, 
at some point, for some reason, and we don't know what it was, a tipping point was reached and she became the bad person. And those rules about what you mention and what you don't mention, in her case, were reversed. The only thing that anyone ever talked about about her was all the bad stuff. And it was her strengths, her qualities, the good stuff that never got mentioned. Now, how do I know that that's what happened in her village? How do you think? Because it's universal. Visit any shop floor or office. Isn't that what humans do? Visit any apartment block or residential street. That's what humans do. Most of the people are on the inside, and there are one or two who are on the outside. Visit every single school playground in the world, and that's exactly what happens, because that's where we learn it. Now, you may not play this game, and of course, I never do either. But it does go on. Believe me, it's pretty universal. But, and this is the key thing, look how Jesus breaks those social rules. He doesn't play the game. On the one hand, he doesn't hide her failings. He drags them out into the open, into the light, so that we assume that he's about to condemn her. He's about to reject her. He's about to turn his back and walk away. And then he does none of those things. He stays sitting there. He continues to reach out, to engage her, to offer her friendship and acceptance. He lets her know that he knows all about her, all her worst secrets, and that he accepts her anyway. Um, think about it from her point of view. Consider her point of view. She's sitting there, rejected by most people. And of all people, the one who seems happy to sit with her and talk to her, the one who isn't ashamed to make friends with her, is this Jewish holy man, the last person you'd expect. She's amazed. She's astonished that he, of all people, seems to want to be her friend, even though most people would say he shouldn't. Well, thank goodness he knows nothing about me. Let's try and keep it, this. Let's try and keep it that way. Let's try and eke out this friendship as long as it'll last. Is, I bet, what she was thinking. Let's make sure the mask is on tight so that I continue to give a good impression, so that he continues to like me. Imagine the double shock when this happens. First of all, how the heck does he know this stuff that he can't possibly know. Who is he? Who is this freak who has this ability to know all her dark secrets, even though he can't possibly know them? What kind of holy man is he? That's the first shock. Secondly, he knows everything about me. 
So now he's bound to walk away. Now he's bound to reject me. He just has to. And yet he doesn't. I think the most profound thing that Jesus does for her in this passage is what he doesn't do at this point. He stays. He doesn't walk away. He's still not ashamed to be with her. He still offers her friendship. He still accepts her. It's like he brings everything out onto the table between them. And he looks her in the eye and says, I see you. I know everything about you. I see all of these things and I accept you anyway. I love you anyway. Excuse me. Uh, the thought occurs to me that this is what unconditional love looks like in action. Um, I'd suggest that unconditional love is actually quite shocking. It makes us uncomfortable. We, we all know about God's unconditional love. We sing songs about it. We like the idea. But when we see it in action, when we see the real thing, it involves breaking all the normal social rules. It seems, at least in this case, to involve some exposure, which makes us uncomfortable. We find it challenging. It makes me think about confession. Sometimes we get the impression that confession is for God's benefit, to kind of vindicate him to prove that he's right and we're wrong. This passage makes me think that confession is entirely for our benefit. It involves us getting out onto the table everything that we, we've done wrong, all our deepest, darkest secrets, in order that we can hear Jesus say to us, I see all this and I love you anyway. I accept you anyway. I'm not ashamed to be your friend. And I think that's what we need to set us free from shame. Why was Jesus so direct with her? Why go through, through this uncomfortable process? Why, why this thing that feels brutal? Why would he do it? Because shame's power depends on keeping that stuff hidden. Um, as long as it's hidden, we're imprisoned by fear. The fear that we'll be exposed, and then when we're exposed, we'll be rejected. This process exposes her, but then shows her that she's still completely accepted. And in that moment, shame's power is destroyed. Imagine Jesus hadn't done this. Imagine Jesus hadn't steered the conversation in this way, in this direction. Then the longer the conversation had gone on, the more she would have been thinking, oh, how am I going to broach, you know, he's getting to know me, 
and I'm getting to know him, how is he going to react when he finds out the truth? Their relationship would be fragile and precarious. There'd always be that fear of rejection hanging over the relationship. What this process does is it shows that his acceptance and his love is robust, that it's been tested and passed the test, that she can have the confidence that he's not going to abandon her. And look at what it does. You, do you notice the transformation? At the start of the story, she's slinking around the well, hoping not to bump into anyone. And what's she doing at the end? She's running back into the village and engaging everyone in conversation. How do you bring about that remarkable demolition of shame? How do you rub that shame out? Well, this is how. So, um, my original question was, how might this story lead us to repent? How might this passage transform our thinking? I'd like to suggest three possible ways that it might, that you might like to consider. I would suggest that the world doesn't operate on unconditional love. But we have to live in the world. And the longer we live in the world, the world has this incredible capacity to erode our ability to give and receive unconditional love. And I don't know about you, but I need constant reminding. It's so easy, just by a process of osmosis, to, to operate, to, to play the game as though I'm still in the playground. Rather than being reminded, rather than discovering what this woman discovered, that it's possible to live with a foundation of unconditional love. I need constant reminders. It's worth taking time to go through this process, to do some confession, to look Jesus in the eye, to say, this is my stuff. This is me. So that we can hear him say, I still love you. I still accept you. I will still want to be your friend. I'm not going to walk away. Here's a second thought. In my relationships with others, how open am I? Am I wearing a mask? We all wear masks. But how much am I wearing a mask? Has it got to the point that I don't notice the mask anymore because it's just become the way I operate with other people? Do I have any relationships where I'm kind of taking a bit more of a risk? Wondering whether I might lower the mask a bit. Um, am I able to do that or is it just too scary? I reckon if it is just too scary, then the solution is to go back to step one. Because it's in that place, one-to-one -one with Jesus, when we discover that he accepts us unconditionally, that like the woman, we, we get that foundation that allows us to take risks with others. I think, that's just my idea. 
but I'd, I'd suggest that's a good place to start. It may be, it may be the extent to which we wear, wear masks is an indicator of how much we have that knowledge of, un, of God's unconditional love for us. That may be a bit challenging, but it's just an idea. But finally, here's something different. Are we more like the disciples, surprised to find Jesus talking to a bad person? Now, there's a funny thing that's happened in our society, I think, in the last few years, which is that the definition of bad people has changed. Um, we are much less tolerant of racism and misogyny, and that's a good thing. We're much more tolerant of people's colorful sexual histories, and we can argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think that's true in our culture. The definition, our society's definition of good people and bad people has changed. But does that mean there are no more bad people? Uh, let me run a few words past you. Face masks. Anti-vaxxer. Brexiteer. I think a funny thing's happened in our society over the last few years, which is that some political and cultural arguments have become so contentious that, that they've been reframed. It's no longer a difference of opinion. You have different attitudes from me towards these questions. And it's like they've become a war between good people and bad people. That's how often these questions are framed in our society today. And so it's like we've invented a new opportunity to play the old, old game. The old game of labeling and excluding. She's not one of us. Um, and I hear you say, yes, but they're completely wrong. Yeah, I'm sure I, they probably are. So they're really the worst kind of people. Well, okay. But if they're the worst kind of people, then how did Jesus treat his society's worst kind of people? And are we willing to follow him or not? Uh, I have a fourth one personally, which is I aim to be less of a curmudgeon. I'm going to make more effort to kind of speak to people. You can help me in that by taking the opportunity to come and say to me, Bill, why haven't you introduced yourself to me yet? And that would be a big help. Alice. Thank you. Um, often I think repentance is, is just, it's, it's as God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's just like a light bulb moment of we see clearly on something. 
And as you know, our values here are operating on, on words of life. And I know that I was drawn into the culture wars during COVID. I know that I, didn't, I moved out of words of life. So my repentance or confession today, my light bulb moment are, will be to not uh, collude with the scheme of polarisation and division, particularly around um, politics. G.K. Chesterton said about 100 years ago, where there is no God, government is God, because we basically want something covering us. And that's why politics has become so idolatrous, because now God isn't there, well, something's got to save us. And I colluded with, I, I moved into words of death about people, um, like Bill was saying, rather than just stuck to um, reflecting my perspective and other people's perspective in an intelligent and healthy way. So that's my light bulb moment. I just, what I want to do is work with those light bulb moments. So, do you, is there anything in what Bill said that you go, yeah, I feel like I know what my thing is that God's speaking to me about? Can you just put up your hand if you think something's already come to you? Brilliant. That's great. So, I am going to press into, I think, Bill's thing of confession of sin. So one of our, our big values here, or our ways we build community, is, is we do with something called threes or fours. So we walk in the light and we bring our stuff into the light with people where there's vulnerability, there's like an organic, healthy, long-term relationship where it's fully safe, fully trusting, and we bring things into the light. Because in James it says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be... Does anyone know the end of that phrase? Healed. That's a massive statement, isn't it? We confess, as Bill says, not for God's benefit, but for our healing. We bring it into the light because it breaks the shame of the power of secrecy. So what I want to encourage people to do now, I'm going to pray, is, is to say yes to moving more into a lifestyle of bringing things into the light. Because I think the more we live in the light, the less we need. As, as Bill says, we receive the unconditional love of God. We know we're loved. And then we, we have less to hide and we're more authentic. Um, we're just ourselves because we don't need to hide anymore. Because we know we're loved. Because we brought stuff into the light. This is a, I, I think we have to be strategic and appropriate about where we bring things into the light to. It requires wisdom and health and maturity. That's why we do it with threes and fours who we walk with. Jesus had his closest friends then in, in lots of circles, and it was in Gethsemane. His, his deepest vulnerabilities were with the, the few closest he walked with, whether it's the transfiguration revealing who he was or whether it was Gethsemane revealing his need for help. He didn't do it when he was feeding the 5,000. So we, this is just an appropriateness to find the people we walk with to bring stuff into the light. But I, I kind of feel like that's the weight on what God wants for us today is, is to do the real work of confession. So how do I know when I've got something to confess? It's just a horrible feeling. You just feel sweaty and nervous and embarrassed. And you're like, oh, this is so embarrassing and I've got a like overcome and do it and um, there's two kinds of things where it's called something like performance vulnerability where you say the thing that sounds vulnerable but it isn't really vulnerable and then authentic confession so the difference is really what's going on with you physiologically it's not it's not science rocket science if you're like I feel really great about this like thing I'm going to be vulnerable about you're not being vulnerable 
It's no cost. You, we feel the cost in our body because we're just like, I'm just going to bring something out here. But I guarantee every time I've done it, I've never regretted it once. I've only ever regretted not doing it sooner because the enemy loves to keep that us in darkness because he loves keeping us in shame. And we were all standing here earlier in our circle time and the light was on us. And it was so uncomfortable. We all had to move. It was just like bright and so burning um, because bringing to the light is initially uncomfortable. But we're people of the light. We're designed to be in the light. It's the most liberating way to live. So that's what I'm going to pray now that all of us do this. This is our lifestyle here is we find a three and a four and we, we walk with people and we bring stuff into the light. Lord, we just want to firstly honour Bill. We want to honour the gift of teaching that you've given him and you've given to us as a body. Can we just give him a clap now to honour and welcome the gift of teaching? And we just pray increase of that in Bill, like uh, the streams of living water. May it just be unlocked now. May the streams of living water within him just flow and flow and flow as he flows in your spirit with the gift of teaching. And we also say, Lord, there's, there's just no more grace left culturally, both within the church and in society for inauthenticity and hypocrisy. There's just platform, like, <laughs> platforms are just being um, torn to shreds. There's, just, there's no more grace left for any kind of religion or performance or hypocrisy. Authentic. It's quite extraordinary how I just read a book recently called The End of Power. It was written about 10 years ago, but you can just see it's continuing. It's continuing. And we just thank you for that. We thank you that you're, you're pulling that rug from under our feet because the most liberating way to be is authentic and to just be in the light and be who we are. And so I bless every single one of us here, but also everyone watching, everyone who will listen to this talk, to know who their people are, their three or their four, and to know that, they, that that safe place, the people they can walk with and bring stuff into the light with, and know the liberating reality of knowing we're loved anyway, we're deeply loved anyway. And then I pray we move into the next level, which is as a community, we are like you in the way we are with other people. We're able to just completely pursue and adore and celebrate anyone and everyone, however much offends self-righteous sensibilities. We just want to be that radical good news for ourselves, the bits in ourselves, which are like the woman at the well, and also the people we meet, which are like that. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if people aren't in threes or fours, because it's, this isn't a home group or a life group, you might notice we don't push on, on centralised organisation because it's a bit like an arranged marriage. Although arranged marriages do have a good track record. I'm not saying you can't have an arranged three or four, bring stuff into the light and it works. It does. But often it's the organic long term we've walked together through stuff i trust you that enables those kind of relationships to work that said we've got a lot of people who've joined hope recently who are hungry and want to move into that we will absolutely please talk to me if you want to go okay 
who are the other people who may be looking to walk in a three or four. We would absolutely love that. But what we're finding more and more, and Emma has a lovely testimony, don't you, Emma, of your three or four? Do you mind if I just share it quickly? So Emma's come to Hope. She really wanted to be in a three or four. And I was like, we're probably not going to organise it because of it, it, it takes time. Where it's, it's hard to be part of this church, not easy. It's hard to join, but it's easy to leave the opposite of a cult. <laughs> um, which means, so Emma was amazing with that. She honoured that. She prayed. And quite soon then, um, some people approached her and asked her if they wanted to join a three or four within Hope. So that was really encouraging to know if you want to, ask God and he will provide the answer. If you're still really struggling, obviously talk to me and ask. But God will have the people for you. He already has those people for you because we feel like he's put that on us as a community. Good. Brilliant. Well, bless everyone. It's so lovely to have you all here. Please go to Bill and just... little poke. <laughs> um, a hug, a hug. And <laughs> you love a hug. Can I, and I'm going to finish on my favourite memories of Bill Druitt at New Wine, which is like a camp of 10,000 people, thousands of people. It's really loud. It's really noisy. You never get your own space. And he's like, this is the worst week of my entire year because I'm a thoughtful, reflective introvert. I don't know why I'm here. And there wasn't laughter. He was like, I just don't know why I'm here brilliant we love it we embrace you we embrace your family and you've brought so much hope you guys being with us have a fantastic week see you next week